Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our next panelist is Father Andrew Hofer, a Dominican priest. He entered the Dominican Order in 1995 and was ordained a priest in 2002. He earned his, his doctorate from the University of Notre Dame. He is currently an associate professor of patristics and ancient languages at the Pontifical Faculty at the Dominican House of Studies. He is also the editor of many volumes, which I will not name here, but he is also the editor of The Thomist, which, if I dare say, is a leading journal of theology and the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Please welcome Father Andrew Hofer. Thank you very much, Father Petrie. It's an honor to be with you. My talk is titled, Witnesses to Sacred Tradition, The Priesthood in the Fathers of the Church, St. Thomas Aquinas, and Beyond. My thesis is this. Tradition goes back to the Trinitarian handing over of the personal divine truth and love that the church receives and hands on from generation to generation, primarily through the sacramental life. By going back to the fathers of the church, the privileged witnesses of sacred tradition, and to the common doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, priests can realize more that they have an irreplaceable role in witnessing to tradition, even when times are tough. Priests are witnesses to tra tradition precisely by priestly ministry for God's glory and our sanctification. For those of us ordained priests, we are called always to be and to act according to living tradition. Otherwise, what we hand over is not God, or, also terribly, we may hand over God in an ungodly way and become traitors, like the Apostle Judas. In his own contribution to Rome's Symposium on the Fundamental Theology of the Priesthood, Pope Francis advocates for what he calls a trusting acceptance of reality, anchored in the wise and living tradition of the Church. Given this thesis, First, we will consider the meaning of tradition, beginning with some insights from Eve Congar and the witness of St. Paul's life as recorded in his first letter to the Corinthians. Second, we will move to the fathers of the church in the early centuries, especially with the help of Father Jean-Robert Armagat and a reflection on a contested point about St. Augustine on the priesthood. Third, we will touch upon St. Thomas Aquinas with the help of Father Dominic Legg and a reflection on Aquinas' own steering the middle way about priestly life in the living tradition of his own troubled times. We will then conclude with us in this century, uh, particularly for those who are called to be ordained priests now as witnesses to sacred tradition, by considering the promises of the elect at the ordination of bishops and the ordination of priests. Yes, all within 20 minutes. <laughs> Part one, tradition. Tradition. <laughs> Eve Congar writes, Tradition or transmission is the very principle of the whole economy of salvation. Tradition in this sense encloses and dominates it completely from the very beginning, which is none other than God. 
Kangar emphasizes that God the Father is the very source of the Son and the Holy Spirit by procession. He continues, God the Father then gives his Son to the world. He delivers him to the world. Here, the New Testament uses our verb to deliver, to show that the Father did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us, to show that the Son gave himself up for us, and finally, to show that he delivered or bestowed his Spirit on John and on Mary at the foot of the cross, representing the church. Kungar draws the conclusion. Thus, the economy begins by divine transmission or tradition. It is continued in and by the men chosen and sent out by God for that purpose. The sending of Christ and of the Spirit is the foundation of the church, bringing her into existence as an extension of themselves. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. When Yves Kungar treats the principal monuments of tradition in his Tradition and Traditions, he begins with the liturgy, what he calls the voice of the loving, praying church, doing more than merely expressing its faith, hymning it, practicing it in a living celebration wherein it makes a complete self-giving. Kungar calls the liturgy the principal instrument of the church's tradition. Following Dom Garanger, Kungar repeats that great Benedictine scholar, it is in the liturgy that the spirit who inspired the scriptures still speaks to us. The liturgy is tradition itself at it, as its highest degree of power and solemnity. Accor adding to Kungar's brief pages on the topic, I want to stress that the sacred liturgy, liturgy of the church principally conveys the sacraments, especially what Dionysius calls the sacrament of sacraments, the Eucharist. Consider St. Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, handed on paradica, a form of paradindomy, or where we get paradosis, tradition, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. St. Paul's times were tough. There were schisms in Corinth. Some did not discern the body, and they grew ill. Now, where else in 1 Corinthians does St. Paul use similar language? I think of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I am reminding you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you indeed received and in which you also stand. Through it you are also being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I handed on, paradica, to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. By proclaiming the central mysteries of the faith, by doing as Christ commanded, even when times are tough, Paul and all those with priestly service to the faith and the sacraments witness to sacred tradition. Part 2, The Fathers of the Church. The Second Vatican Council's Dei Verbum says, the words of the Holy Fathers witness to the presence of this living tradition, whose wealth is poured into the practice and life of the believing and praying church. In 1989, the prefect of the Congregation for Catholic Education, Cardinal William Baum, published its Instruction in the Study of the Fathers of the Church in Priestly Formation. The first of three reasons to study the Fathers in Priestly Formation is, the Fathers are privileged witnesses of tradition. 
It is for good reason that in Volume 1 of the Fundamental Theology of the Priesthood, Proceedings of the Symposium, we find an essay titled, Priesthood According to the Fathers of the Church. Father Jean-Robert Amagat begins his essay on the Fathers of the Church with a quotation of the 4th century Pope Sericius. No one thinks that ordinations are an earthly matter, because the priesthood is something heavenly. In his essay, Father Amagat states clearly, the common denominator of the study is the purpose of the priesthood. It is about serving the economy of salvation, 1 Corinthians 4, stewards, economoi, of God's mysteries. The sacramental approach seems the most relevant for a fundamental theology of the priesthood. Father Amagat makes a fourfold contribution, and I will quote his four summaries. The first is that it is difficult to determine the precise meaning of the terminology and the nature of the functions of the ministries of the apostolic and sub-apostolic ages. Two things should be noted. First, recourse to the letter to the Hebrews to affirm the one priesthood of Christ. And then the mention of functions in the context of conflicts in the churches, both at Corinth, Clement of Rome, and at Philadelphia, Ignatius of Antioch. The second observation is the diversity of ministries. Proclamation of the word, didascalus, predominates at Alexandria, while at Antioch what distresses the offering of sacrifice, hirerus, and at Jerusalem, followed by Rome, it is government, presbyteros. This diversity finds its unity in the mediation of Christ. The third observation is the awareness of a particular link with Christ the priest through baptism, reconciliation, and the Eucharist. This relationship presupposes a stable, permanent sacramental institution. It elicits a life of humility and service in imitation of Christ, Cyprian. The fourth observation is that the oneness of baptism unites lay people and priests in the hypostatic unity of the church, Maximus Confessor, as sharing one single priesthood and diversity of functions, Augustine and Origen. Now, for those who study the fathers in depth, important questions arise on the fundamentals of the priesthood. For example, an eminent scholar of Augustine of Hippo in a 2022 book, goes so far as to claim that for St. Augustine, the bishop acted as the leader and minister of the church, but contrary to the Donatists, his office did not make him its priest, intercessor, or mediator. I disagree with that conclusion. It is true that Augustine explicitly denies the Donatist sense of bishops as mediators because the Donatist purist schismatics would make a bishop a rival to the one mediator between God and the human race, Christ Jesus. But Augustine testifies in Sermon 135, Certainly, brethren, because God willed it, I am his priest. He says this to disabuse his people of the thought that he or any priest of the new covenant is personally holier than others by the priesthood. And so Augustine continues, I am a sinner. With you, I beat my breast. With you, I ask for forgiveness. With you, I hope in the propitious God. Yet, certainly, he is God's priest. He is a priest with powers of sanctification that came from his office, into which he was ordained by other bishops. By the way, the principal bishop of his consecration was Megalius of Kalama, and Augustine's opponents spread the rumor of how Megalius uh, said something about uh, about a scandal in Augustine's life. A bishop for Augustine has certain shepherding tasks of sanctification that are not found among the lay faithful and are not dependent on an individual bishop's holiness. 
In letter 261, Augustine takes pains to deflate his correspondent's bloated titles for him. But rather than denying the title of dispenser of eternal salvation, dispensator salutis eternae, he clarifies a point found in several homilies that distinguish between his salvation as a Christian and the threat to his salvation as a bishop. I am a dispenser of eternal salvation with numerous other fellow servants, and if I do this willingly, I have a reward, but if I do it unwillingly, I have only its dispensation entrusted to me. For to be a dispenser of salvation by means of the word and sacrament is not already to be a sharer in it. As proof, Augustine evokes how salvation is dispensed at times by good men, such as Paul, who bids, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ, and by evil men, about whom the Lord says, do what they say, but do not do what they do. Augustine continues, they are then many who dispense salvation, by whose ministry people come to eternal life. But it is required of a minister that he be found faithful. Recall what sacred tradition and what priests are to do in handing on God in a godly way. Augustine did that. During tough times of schism, he ministered the sacraments to his priestly people, and he preached in that sacramental context, whether it be convenient or inconvenient. Part 3, St. Thomas Aquinas. In the first volume of Rome's Symposium on the Fundamental Theology of the Priesthood, Father Dominic Legg has an excellent essay titled St. Thomas Aquinas on the Priesthood and the Trinity. First, Father Legg presents Aquinas' account of Christ's priesthood set within the wider Trinitarian frame of how God the Father brings all things back to himself by sending the Son into the world, breathing forth the Holy Spirit upon the church. You can think about that divine traditioning. Second, Father Legg investigates why Christ instituted ministerial priests in the church, according to St. Thomas. Third, Father Legg discusses Aquinas on the ministerial priesthood, paying special attention to the little-known Trinitarian dimensions of Aquinas' teaching. Father Legg shows that Aquinas holds a unique importance among his contemporaries in stressing the structural importance of the priesthood for teaching on Christ. In his essay, Father Legg quotes the following passage from the Summa's Tertia Pars, question 22. The proper office of a priest is to be a mediator between God and the people, namely insofar as he gives divine things to the people, offers the prayers of the people to God, and in some way makes satisfaction to God for their sins. The Latin for he gives divine things to the people is divina populotratit. Not coincidentally, Aquinas uses the same verb when he speaks of Christ's public ministry and of a religious who gives to other things, to others, things contemplated. Contemplata adis tradit. During his lifetime, Aquinas responded by witnessing to the living tradition to the mendicant controversies about priestly life and ministry. He steered a middle course between two extremes during tough times, and so often these times are overlooked. In 1254, a Franciscan friar by the name of Gerard of Borgo Sandonino, a follower of Joachim of Fiore's apocalyptic views, argued that Franciscan spiritual men would overturn the hierarchy of the church in 1260. They didn't. <laughs> and Gerard was condemned before 1260. <laughs> the church knew. Now, a secular master at the University of Paris, William of St. Amour, and others reacted violently and went to the opposite extreme. William wrote on the dangers of the last times, and in it, 
He says that the new Dominicans and Franciscans were threatening the apostolic order of the church. He thought that their very form of life was mortally sinful and against tradition. While steering clear of Joachite theology, Aquinas thought that William and his colleagues were repeating the heresies of Jovinian and Vigilantius, attacking the holiness in the church, holiness in this form of priestly life and ministry. We who, study on Aquinas, we who study Aquinas on the priesthood should call to mind that the form of his religious priesthood was under grave attack. Aquinas answered William and company in his Contra Impignates against those who were fighting. In, his, in its introduction, Aquinas says, Although God, who is almighty, could of himself alone have caused man to glorify him and to obtain salvation, notice the two, to glorify him and to obtain salvation, he, was, he has willed that a certain order should be preserved in this work of salvation. Consequently, he has appointed ministers by whose labors the twofold end of man's creation is to be accomplished. That God wants ministers to do what God wants, and that is glorifying God and the salvation of the world. And for those who oppose this, they are emissaries of Satan. That's what St. Thomas says. Attentive to the twofold end of the glory of God and the sanctification of the faithful, St. Thomas shows us a richly Trinitarian theology of how priests of whatever form of life in the church, including the mendicant orders, are to be faithful to this plan of God. With his, living, with his faithfulness to living tradition, St. Thomas gave theological support for the church's protection and fostering of priestly life and ministry in the new mendicant orders. By the way, in 1024, sorry, in 2024, Next year, the Thomist will have a special issue on St. Thomas Aquinas and priestly formation with an article on Aquinas and priestly formation from 1274 to Vatican II, and then five more articles on St. Thomas in human, spiritual, philosophical, theological, and pastoral formation today. Please look for it. Conclusion. Going beyond the fathers of the church and St. Thomas Aquinas and witnessing to sacred tradition, Let's consider bishops and priests today. First, Lumen Gentium teaches, a bishop marked with the fullness of the sacrament of orders is the steward of the grace of the supreme priesthood, especially in the Eucharist, which he offers or causes to be offered and by which the church continually lives and grows. In the rite of ordination of a bishop, the ordaining bishop begins the promise of the elect with these words. The ancient rule of the Holy Fathers decrees that the one to be ordained bishop should be questioned in the presence of the people concerning his resolve to guard the faith and to discharge this office. The ordaining bishop then questions the bishop-elect, such as, Do you resolve to guard the deposit of faith, pure and entire, according to the tradition preserved always and everywhere in the church from the time of the apostles? Second, we consider the right of ordination of a priest. The ordaining bishop asks the candidate, do you resolve to celebrate the mysteries of Christ reverently and faithfully according to the tradition of the church, especially in the sacrifice of the Eucharist and the sacrament of reconciliation for the praise of God and the sanctification of the Christian people? Notice the twofold end of creation that St. Thomas teaches is now about the twofold end of priestly ministry, glorifying God and sanctifying God's people. 
I was ordained a priest by Theodore Cardinal McCarrick, Archbishop of Washington, D.C., in 2002. Between the time that I was ordained a deacon by McCarrick in 2001 and my priesthood ordination in 2002, the U.S. was jolted by the Boston Globe reporting on clerical abuse. Over two decades later, we in the church have had many opportunities to learn a great deal, and the members of the church can continue to change by receiving divine truth and love. From my experience, our times are tough. We know that some priests are not giving God in a godly way, but are imitating Judas. And it happens in every age. We are now in a new synodal process pertinent to today's topic of the priesthood. Similar to St. Thomas Aquinas' day, there are extremes of those who want fundamentals to change and those who do not want anything to change. I highly recommend the April 2023 issue of The Thomist, now available. <laughs> it's a special issue of eight articles on synodality. In the first article, Dr. Greg Lenave writes, the vision of synodality, that light is shed upon both church life and church teaching by reflection on the experience of the whole church traveling together, is compelling and sound. But it is undermined if it sees itself as separate from tradition. What is called for, Lenave continues, is a diachronic synodality, a sense that the church that travels together encompasses all times. Bishops and priests have a defining role in witnessing to tradition within the unity of the church of all times, including tough times. All time belongs to Christ, as a priest announces in preparing the Paschal candle at the Easter vigil. The Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one who commands us on the night before he died, do this in memory of me. That is the priestly act at the heart of the priesthood. That is where we most witness to sacred tradition. When we priests hand on what we have received, that Christ died and rose according to the scripture, and offer the sacrifice of the mass, we are witnessing to tradition by word and deed. We are making present God's own tradition his own truth and love, so that we in the church may change, that we may change more and more to being one in Christ who changes not. Thank you. Do have some time for some questions. Thank you, Father Andrew. I was struck by your point about simply doing what Christ commands as part of tradition. Based on that being placed especially within the sacramental economy, would you say that Jesus Christ is the principal agent of the act of tradition? Thank you for that question. Uh, so, Congar would sometimes go to the Holy Spirit as the one who is uh, invisibly guiding the whole process but precisely that it is God who is acting, and that you see that the Son, in being born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, dying, and rising for us, he really is that agent, and that he works together with the Spirit. So together that the Son and the Spirit 
are always giving the church the agency of then doing what we are meant to do. And, and it makes me think in terms of Holy Thursday, the Mass of the Lord's Supper, the three mysteries that are being commemorated. And so that you have the institution of the Holy Eucharist, the institution of the order of the priest, and the commandment of fraternal charity. So that commandment of loving one another as Jesus loves us that we find in the Eucharist, the sacrament of love. Another question here, Father Philip. Thank you, Father Andrew. My question has to do with um, kind of spirit-led doing. So we talk a lot about discernment, which is kind of a spirit-led figuring out. Um, but it seems like one of the main um, helps of the spirit in the New Testament is also a boldness in doing. So could you talk about the relationship between um, trying to work out, having a difficult time working out the right thing to do and having a difficult time doing the right thing that is clear. Thank you. So the Spirit gives the church boldness, that, that boldness to be able to pronounce that Jesus Christ is Lord, to be able to tell the world that God became man, died for us, and was risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the fundamental boldness that the Holy Spirit gives for us to be freed from sin, to free the world that God so loves, so that way that the world may be brought back to the Father. There needs to be a clarity about who God is and then how uh, we have the clarity of our own self-knowledge, that we are loved by God and brought into the mystery of something that is beyond us. So I would say it's very important that uh, for us to call forth again and again the Holy Spirit to give us boldness and clarity about who God is and how we're called to be with him. We're called to be changed by him. Oh, there he is, Chicago guy. Very good. <laughs> Thank you for taking my question. Um, Colonel Supich, when he missioned me to the Newman Center at the University of Chicago, was, as he does for the other chaplains, too, of, of the other schools, he wants us to work hard at creating a culture of vocations to the priesthood and talking about it. So one of the things I do in homilies or other contexts is to talk about the connection between the sacraments and the priesthood that um, Jesus' risen presence to sanctify and, and make holy the the his disciples is in and through the sacraments and that without those the pre, without the priesthood then the sacraments could fade away not that we don't have hope that there always will be priests from one generation to the next but it's a way to try to maybe spark in young men a thought that i i should discern and step up and and at least, you know and to pursue vocation do you think that's too reductionistic or maybe sort of consistent with some of the things you're developing in your talk? Uh, I want to stress that the sacramental life is of the greatest importance, that this is how God allows us to have our sins forgiven and to be brought back to him, and that priests are precisely ordained for the sake of the church, for, the, for Christ's flock. And it's, it's not reductionistic to tell people that we need priests. If you want the Holy Communion, you need a priest. There is no Eucharist without the priest. And again, on Holy Thursday night, to think about those three mysteries together, 
the institution of the Holy Eucharist, the institution of the priestly order, and the commandment for fraternal charity. And that's where just that all the sacraments are ordered around the Eucharist, that this is that even because some would say might say oh with baptism you can even have a pagan with the right intention of the church to baptize validly but all the baptismal priesthood is i think meant to be preparation for the fullness of the sacramental life and that's where that the baptized are also meant to be confirmed and to participate in the sacrifice of the eucharist so i think i think that's important that that people see the connections and, and just the great dignity of being conformed to Christ uh, and the sacrifice that's involved there. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.